0: One, two, no, 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 okay. Now oh. <laughs> it, it counts down. It yeah. says three, two, one, go, and Who you does? you did it on three. Well, let's see. Uh,
1: le- hello everyone and welcome to season five, episode three of the Juxcast, with me, Malcolm Sparks, me, John Pither, and me, Harry Percival, <laughs> not At, forgetting and also me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. So what's happened last time? Well, first of all, just a welcome to Harry. who's joined Jux. Welcome, Harry. Just say hello. Uh, Hi, and you want to give a little bit of an yeah. origin
2: story? How did you? What? End? Sure. Let's see. I I I'm a computer programmer. My name is Harry Percival. I learned to program on a thing called a Thomson T07, which is a, a computer you plug into your TV. It's got rubber keys. They go boop when you press them. And it's it's in France. And you used to plug that into your TV, and it had this amazing thing called a light pen, which you could press into the screen, and it would like time itself with the raster of the CRT pixels to be able to like act like a mouse. And we used to write programs in basic and basically make little paint programs. So you could use the light pen to draw things on screen. That was my favorite thing. I was about 11. Brilliant. And then I stopped programming until I was about 30, really, um, apart from spreadsheets. Mm. But yeah, after, you know, wilderness years. Had it changed much when you came back? Yeah, and most people didn't do things in Basic anymore, unless you count Visual Basic for Applications, which I dabbled in a bit. I also, know I spent a year at IBM where I was a certified Lotus Notes principal application developer.
1: We like yeah. Lotus Notes. Get on with Jeremy, well. Yeah. 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 Jeremy's on holiday this week, but back next week. So, bit of news. Well, we had our last last episode. We were talking about getting ready for the Jux Party, which we had, I think, last month, and it was it was good.
0: Yeah, excellent. It was good. We all did a
1: bit of a song. John John got up and did his. Um, Two songs, so XT twenty 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 vision, mm.
3: yeah, and and a song called the Work Song. But uh, yeah, so th- this was a party that was inspired by the the conference that didn't take place, XT twenty. Yeah, and we had a beautiful venue for its Old Music Hall. We had some songs and some skits all prepared. So
2: I just want to say that the promo video for the XT twenty I found on YouTube was one of the main reasons I decided to go through with the application. I was like, Right, <laughs> these people know how to promote an event and make a promotional video.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wait, which one was it? Was it? The one with John running
2: around going, here's where we're going oh, to invent yeah. the ideas oh, of the future. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, where yeah. we can relax. And Malcolm in the background playing like cheesy piano. and then <laughs> cut, Both cut to camera to sing. So I was just yeah. like, right. The yeah, tongues are in the right level of cheek here.
1: That tech great. conference come musical was, was going to be difficult to pull off. And then the pandemic happened. But we decided we were going to do it anyway. And we kind of did it under the kind of 10-year juxtaparty yeah. thing. So we feel w- that we've purged that ghost now. That's an expression. Anyway, so Alex, you got to do your little rock opera, which was quite good. Mm-hmm. We're going to do yep. some videos of, yeah, uh, yep. of
0: that. Maybe by the time this podcast goes out, we'll actually have the footage. From I now. don't know.
3: Yeah, but I recommend that you can go and see the song now. It's on YouTube. It's called "The Holy War." Yes. Mm-hmm. What is the war about? We can't say. Yeah. But it's very. I think it's much I better.
1: Li- much better live. I live live version. Yeah. Than yeah. Same,
3: which yeah.
0: We we had um we had a bit of a problem with the singer for that song because the version on youtube which you can see is sung by my sister was recorded in like christmas 2019 when i was just home with my family and and i was just like oh you can sing sing on on this song about you know whatever it's about she's a good singer Yeah, yeah she did a music performance degree and so we we sort of set up like a cheap microphone in a wardrobe with like a mattress propped up against the wall (laughs) and recorded the vocals. But then for the actual party, she's a teacher, so she just couldn't take the time off. So with like one week's notice, someone else in to Connor, his sister agreed to do it. And
3: sisters.
0: And I think she just did an amazing job. Yeah, you know, especially considering the time constraints, because it's not exactly a, an easy song to learn or, or to yeah. know the parts
3: to. So, yeah, we, we was, had we had a few songs, and there were a fair few people like Jeremy and Lou that turned up on the day and were given a piece to play on some yeah. instrument, and yeah. and they all killed it. it was, yeah.
1: Well, we are going to every episode of this season. We are going to outro with one of the songs you know in the order that we played them so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end of this podcast now we've got to move along we've only got half an hour left news any any news that's happened john What's...
3: news 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 um right
1: well one thing is that we we went to banking transformation summit yesterday
3: we did it's it's a very interesting conference to go to like you know what is the state of banking there's so much going on isn't there malcolm like you know, the whole distributed banking, embeddable mm. banking, open banking. There's lots of prefixes and all these things are like, you know, subcategories that are just incredibly vast. But, you know, there's lots of people from lots of different banks there. And I guess there's one thing that you could take away from it is that the pace of change is pretty darn fast mm. and there's so much going on. There's a cloud, there's AI, and everyone's scrambling to make sense of it. So it was actually quite an interesting conference to go to.
1: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of good chats. I particularly enjoy talking to people about APIs because that's my... Uh, that's the thing I'm really interested with. And and I was able to talk to somebody from Deutsche Bank who flew in from Frankfurt, Joris Henson, who was talking, who, who really in 2015 created a huge API program in, within Deutsche Bank. And it's been really successful. So it was really interesting hearing how that happened from a grassroots and how, you know, they, they made that the success that it is. Anyway, we had also BabashkaConf. And I went over to Berlin to to give a keynote at Babashka, conference, a first conference about Babashka. Which, Harry, have you heard? Of Babashka? No, I never
2: heard of this thing before what? I showed up. It's like, oh well, we've made a closure bash harm thing, so Frankenstein, everyone loves it. Like, okay, he's big enough to have a conference. You say fair enough, fair enough.
1: I love Babashka, and even yesterday when I was at the conference and I was hacking away, and I was having this problem with it. I had a bash script that I needed to call some Babashka and I was trying to pass all the arguments to it and I noticed I was putting these users and I was putting in kind of like Alex and then his full name was Alex Davis but in the database it was just coming up as Alex and not Alex Davis oh, what's going on and it turns out that there is all kinds of these different quoting rules about if you put quotes in bash and all these kind of weird syntactic archaic forms I just moved the whole thing to Babashka and all that stuff disappeared so Babashka is an amazing uh, tool we do have all the videos Uh, i was able to buy a a video camera at saturn the day before Mm -hmm. so we were able to record them all and they're all in production so look out for those babashka videos and uh, some of the talks are really really good so that handycam is now the toy of the week we we have bought other things but that i haven't spoke about the handycam was about i don't know like it's about 450 euro and i was amazed at the quality and the microphone and the audio and everything was so much better than those kind of handy cams of the past so if you think that the phones are the last word in video go back to some sort of old reliable tech and you'd be impressed
0: yeah it's amazing how like ai and machine learning has changed all of this video processing that goes on like everyone's phones nowadays it just does a huge amount of computations on the image and i know a lot of people don't like that because it makes it look artificial sometimes but I think it's gotten good enough to the point where an amateur video editor with photoshop could have spent like half an hour making it look as good as a phone can do it on every frame in a video and obviously now like the same tech is slowly moving into those handicam things so it's pretty cool yeah
1: well what else has happened the London to Brighton bike ride yeah Alex and I and Sarah we went down there on where there was about six of us and uh, the weather showed up. It was a lovely day, cycling through the Sussex countryside.
2: Yep,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. It was good. We saw uh, someone on a Santander Boris bike. No. <laughs> uh, someone, someone did it on a BMX, um, roller skates,
1: roller skates. Somebody doing a wheelie down oh, yeah. the entire hill. how oh, I should wheel. pay
2: for that Boris bike. For...
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you must I have. Know. I don't know if you he just like left it in Brighton or if he had to cycle <laughs> it back. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a great, great day out and definitely recommend it, even if you're not into cycling, like most of the people there, I'd say, were, you know, novice cyclists. You can go at your own pace. There's plenty of refreshments. It's very well marshaled. The roads are closed. So the
2: roads are closed.
0: Yeah, almost all the roads Mm -hmm. are closed.
1: No, it it was great. So that, is, that rounds up our news. Now we're going to go into a section of, we're just talking about an XDDB update. Now we've been very busy, or the, the team have been busy, John, on creating this thing called a 4R Index. Do you want to give an explanation what's going on?
3: Yeah, I'll talk a bit about the XDDB program in general. So we're fresh, relatively speaking, uh, from the closure conge, where the team worked extremely hard. To, to basically merge this thing called, called Core 2, which was a prototype version, like a next-gen XTDB, and that is now XDB 2.0, and we've got an early access out, so people can get hold of it, they can play with it. Uh, please go and check out my talk, actually, on the, the state of XTDB at the Clojure College, College if you want to learn more, you know, if you want to learn what's in XTB 2.0. So really, I think you know, we got back from that, and there was a collective sigh you know, of relief that we got it out there, and the feedback has been pretty good. So we've been you know getting back to work really so so there's an early access of xdb 2.0 out we want to try and get towards an alpha so people you know can play with it a bit more play with some real data sets and stress it a bit more the work that's been going on is is has been around things like getting select star working from SQL. that's been that's in there now the pr has gone through i've seen that and also this yes this indexing layer so so we did For the early access, we had a temporal index and it was like a first proof of concept and it works pretty well, but all the data had to be on one node and it wasn't as fast for certain types of queries like the OLTP, the transactional queries wasn't as quite as good for that. So now the team have got a new version of the the indexing in there and this is a covering index that covers both the content as well as the temporal data. And it has, as you just said, Malcolm, it's like this 4R approach, which to me is someone from... Relatively speaking, I'm not as close to the code as I used to be. It's basically four different indexes, I think, and it chooses one depending on the type of query. So there's one for, like, if you're doing a query with the as-of data, like the most recent data, then there's an index for that that's a bit more hot, right, because it's the most recent data. But then there's one for, like, going back in time, and then there's one for going back in transactional time. So depending on the type of temporal query, if you're doing an OLAPI or an OLTP query, it can choose a different index. And... Um, so far, it's it's working really well. Like it means that you know it's it's staying true to that mission of actually DB two point zero, in that every node just needs a data that it needs to satisfy a query. So if you if if you never do certain types of queries, then that node won't need to go and fetch that particular index data to satisfy those queries. But so far, is is doing that, which is excellent, and it's faster as well. So against all our benchmarks, the ORTP, the transactional queries, and also the analytical ones, is coming up a lot faster. I won't give you a stats because you know it's not as home yet; it's not as polished, but it is significantly faster. So so far, so good. It's it's it's, it's all sort of guns blazing and moving forward towards an alpha release, and uh, just keeping the good vibe of the project going which is very exciting i do just want to give a shout out to we've got a couple of engineers the two dans dan stone and dan mason it's like you know (laughs) they they've been holding the fort on xdb 1.0 so you know just tuning the jdbc setup a bit more and also making the checkpointing a bit better so yeah we've got a fair few people on the project now and it's going really well yeah, that's, that,
1: that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to having a play with it. It's, a lot of the speed increases are coming from the, the choice of Apache Arrow as a file format, which is, is giving us a big boost mm. in terms of how fast we, we, can, mm. we can ingest and output data. So that's, yeah. that's super exciting. What's Apache Arrow? What's Apache Arrow, John? That's a good thing to answer.
3: It's a columnar data format. So you know how you got a table, like, you know, we talked about it at lunch, a relational table, of course, with column files, you basically, for just one of those columns, mm. one of those fields, you have a file for all the values that have come in yeah. and each one's got a row ID. So you can tie it back yeah. to like the row if, yeah. from whence it came yeah. and uh, it's a very powerful way of managing your data. And it's like a, it's the hotness of modern DBs. It means that if you do a query and you're not doing a select star, say, then the yeah, query you don't just need to get the
2: whole row every time, just the columns you care about, but you do need to get each column
3: exactly yeah okay. so you can just get those column files and it's very quick to navigate around them because there's like a dictionary that says this column file has these particular values there might be a, a bloom filter on there mm-hmm, so you can mm-hmm, assess mm-hmm. if you actually need to go and hit a column file before you go and get it and they can press down really well and Apache Arrow is just extremely fast it has that mechanical sympathy thing going on the vectorization and and it, it also means like from an XD. Uh, DB point of view, we can push a lot of the working with that data close into the Apache Arrow libraries that have just been um, extremely highly tuned. So we're getting lots of speed-ups, and there's a you know, by staying with Arrow it's like there's lots of development happening in the Arrow space. Arrow is like a standard as well, so different implementations for different languages it's extremely open, but it means that we've got a kind of upgrade path because the work is going on to make it faster still, and we're going to benefit from that. So, so far so good we're really happy with it. Check it out.
2: Where did it come from? Apache. Oh, yeah, no. But yeah, I don't know the actual <laughs>
3: genesis before that. There are, there are some good talks on like it, so I recommend you oh, check sure. them out. It's Apache Parquet, as well, is a, a different version that, that really excels in compression, which is something i to consider. But this columnar space, of managing large data sets and just getting what you need and navigating around and accessing in a very open way, is extremely exciting
1: very good and of course we're still p- talking about bi-temporality because that is the one thing that we want to just bake in as a standard to to the database so that it is just available anytime you may need it in fact we're talking about bi-temporality kent beck the, the father of xp and agile one of the one of the original Snowbird signatories to the Adjohn Manifesto. So Kent's been around the scene, around the block for a long, long time. And uh, and he's written a blog recently on his Substack about bitemporality and explaining why it's important and why, you know, it might not be the first thing that you think of when you build a system. But in fact, when you have it, it can yield all kinds of good opportunities. So
3: yeah, You don't simply know you need it until it's a bit too late. You've already sort of created all this time columns everywhere and you have to manage it yourself mm-hmm. so just having it there waiting for you for when you need it
1: it's, So it'd be good did, to get,
3: did, did, did you meet Ken Beck
1: Malcolm was yeah I, yeah I did work with him actually in year 2000 I was in Dublin and you know he just came in to the company to help us on TDD and so he mm-hmm. he taught me how to do test-driven development and nice. that good XP stuff and while he was in Dublin he, he kind of you know joined the the, the very new dublin xp community and did a lot of talks and pubs and and stuff and it was really good really good hanging out with kent for a, a few weeks and uh, very much you know enjoyed and, and and learned a lot from him so it'd be good to get him on the on the juxt at some point so we'll kent if you're listening we'll warmly welcome you to uh, <laughs> for a catch-up so moving on i think we've got one more <clears throat> thing we're going to talk about the the party again we're going to going to we had a conference at the party, so that was the afternoon that we had a kind of internal conference. Alex, you gave a talk?
0: Yes, I did. Should be released soon. I've got all the footage back for it now. Yeah, basically it was really my a sort of collection of my experiences on working in the front end with ClojureScript, as well as a bit of TypeScript. And sort of I compiled all of that experience that I had into these sort of three different ways of starting a front-end project so if you're interested in uh, starting a new project and you like closure and closure script then keep an eye out for that talk that will be published soon to our Jux youtube channel i guess yeah we'll have i think six talks to that
1: youtube channel and again we're you know we're, we've got a lot of content that we're we're busy producing so just hold on that's it anything more to add
3: post agile is a topic that I think we're talking about the moment. Like we, we've had a few conversations about this, haven't we, Malcolm? You, know, you quite, had a chat
1: with Dan North, didn't you? He went to lunch with him or had a drink Yeah,
3: with him? I went to, like, it, it was a really nice day, one of the first nice day, days of the year. Yeah. And everyone's outside with sunglasses and enjoying the weather. And we just went into this dingy sort of London <laughs> boozer and just had a couple of pints. But I really like Dan. He's He's someone that inspired me, I think, to really read up and know about lean, you know, the software engineering approach and things like value stream mapping and categorizing waste which I'm still a big fan of, really. I think it's a really good way to objectively talk about some bottlenecks in a project. So it of gets around the sort of, you know, humans are quite sort of, they can be a bit wary if you go in and say, oh, it's not so good here, you could do this a different way. When you talk objectively about the value stream mapping, where the value is getting blocked in the, the flow from getting out, out, out the door into production, and when you try and categorize waste. So I think it's just a better way of talking about those issues. So yeah, I've been following Dan for a while, and he's also into the JFUS levels of learning, which is something that I also find very appealing. Um, But we're just chatting away and Dan is, he's writing a book and Dan has been out there in the trenches doing lots of coaching and mentoring and looking at teams and figuring out how to get teams more high-performing. And he's trying to collect these patterns really in, into a book. Like he goes, to these very excellent high-performing teams are just absolutely killing it. And he's like, what are they doing? Like, what's the secret sauce? Is it just that they're very, very experienced and they just know a lot of stuff and they work well together? Or are there patterns that we can pick out and use? So I think that, that I haven't checked before this podcast, but I think that book is actually being produced by Lean Pubs. It's probably out there in a, a half baked form already. That's while well we're checking out. But I mean, we've been talking a lot about it's post agile and what is it? And uh, it's interesting the way that Dan talks, he, he frames it that. The things that we get taught as though these are the things you have to do all the time, like TDD, always start with a test case. You've always got to be doing like CD and getting builds through the pipeline, all this kind of thing. Dan is saying these high performing teams, they don't actually do that much of that stuff. Yeah. What He said, you know, my, the best high performing team I work with, guess what the test coverage was. And can you guess what it was?
2: A hundred percent.
3: Yeah. I humored him by saying, Oh, it's got to be 50 down lower than what you think because okay. normally you know, less than 80 is really bad. He was like, No, John, it's seven percent. Oh, <laughs> he was like, Yeah, and he was like, That's what these teams do. They, these they are holy
2: cows now, come on.
3: <laughs> he's saying, You don't test everything because like you work with the application all the time, like you fire it up all the time. You don't need mm. to have tests around the most basic things about it firing up because like, you're gonna know right, mm. if that doesn't work. And he's saying that the, the very best experienced engineers they know where to apply testing that, that that works and really pays for its own, its own weight there and uh, yeah that got me thinking and uh, you know chatting to you Malcolm and you, you've got a slightly different take on post agile as well haven't you that we're just discussing down the down the, the lunch I'm interested yeah. to, to hear Harry's thoughts as well because you've written a book haven't you on yeah. test driven development yeah. so this feels like it's got the makings of quite a little showdown here so what do you take it away Malcolm
1: well I mean I think after 20 20- 25 years of, of of agile. I think there are going to be things that you reflect upon, and things things that that work really really well, and things that don't work as well as they should, or you know things that have been oversold. It does seem there are a lot of things in agile that still we, we kind of take as holy cows that they these that you have to do them because this is you know the, these are the rules and and without thinking about them. And yeah. I think that we've come from a more of a functional programming. And so I suppose closure and rich hickey and that, that kind of philosophy, which gives us a, a different perspective too. Uh, I, I, I certainly think there's, a, that there's enormous value in, in, in having the right tests and having tests that are very, very easy to run. And, and I think we, we were talking about type systems as well. There's some people over the, the feeling that if you just get everything compiling, mm. then that, that should be enough. You shouldn't I need. I have any seen tests. that
2: work. That is a real thing in certain circumstances, like the, the Elm people at the last company. I was looking at them, they they essentially, they had very, very few tests. I mean, 7% would not be far off and Mm. they would joke saying, Hey, look, Elm philosophy, if it compiles, it works TM Mm. and they said it with a tongue in the cheek, knowing it's not completely true, Mm. but having looked at, you know, skeptically at these code bases for quite a while, I saw the compiler does prevent you from writing a lot of errors. And then Elm as a language is this pure functional thing. And the, the browser is a framework, so it limits the ways that you can go wrong. And sure enough, yeah, the the only tests they really needed were the weird tests for little edge cases or some regex-based parser for for validation or something with really fiddly edge cases, which there's not that much of when you're building the front end of an application. It's just a lot of plumbing and types can help you get plumbing right. And they were very relaxed about that. And I saw it working. And so I'm at least open-minded or made open-minded.
1: Yeah, we we were talking also about, I mean, I'd like to, See a Agile: The Good Parts, but we t- one of the things I re- I'm a big fan of TDD. I'm not a big fan of continuous delivery, and this is something of a, a kind of a heresy. More heresy, yes. um, yeah, more that's heresy. like a big one. But I, I mean, and and not to, not to really kind of rant too much about it, but I think they're trying to improve the number of times that you release every day. You're trying to target the wrong metric because, mm-hmm. from a user point of view, it's not necessarily that the user is users are asking for newer and newer software all the time i certainly don't when i i I get used to a piece of software and every time i get that android update oh something's going to be slightly different now and that only happens every few times a year but to be delivering software frequently and i understand that you know about the smoothness and the lean and small batches and we have a theory for it but I'm not sure whether it's a good idea and partly it's because it makes the developers part of the system that the, in fact that the continuous delivery pipeline has to be pushed it has to have developers who are, who are doing new releases of the code every time if the developers all go on strike and don't come in one day there are no releases to production right so by its very nature you're looking very, very odd at odd at me, Harry. I'm sure that. Well, I mean, way. whether you
2: release once a day or four times a year, if you've got no developers, there's zero percent production right? Yeah,
1: yeah, but my my point is is that we want our we I, I would celebrate software that didn't have to get continually released that was good enough that the users then could take it on, and make the changes that they needed to, needed to. And my example for that is the classic one of Excel, yeah, the yeah, spreadsheet, yeah. where you know the developers have built something that is able for the users to use and fix their own problems from time to time so they're almost decoupled from the developers and I think that's my problem with coupling systems that couple developers with these kind of constant releases means that developers hey you know we're we're going to be well paid and paid forever if if we're part of a a good project team always delivering to production but I think there is something wrong I can't put my finger on it but there's something very expensive and inefficient and laborious and, and expensive about that approach and I think what we need to do is think of more economic ways of building software
3: i guess you're, you know the post agile or the, or, the, or the agile approach in a dogmatic way is where you start off and before you really know what you're doing you'll crack out a test case and you'll do the simplest thing that can possibly work the simplest thing is not necessarily the right thing, if you take a step back and you think, do I need to code up this container or this dog into an object class? Yes, that's simple to get going, but maybe a better way is to actually separate out those schemas and types and make it something that the user's got more control over so that if something minute changes in the business world, we don't have to have a new release.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think the, that that is the test. If if something... So
2: you're sort of saying, yeah, if you do a lot of releases, it's going to encourage you to do a lot of releases and make everything go via software developers yeah. rather than thinking about how can we yeah. enable business people to do new things yeah. without needing to ask us questions. Like no matter how fast we can ship software, it'd be great if the business people just do it without asking us. Mm.
3: And, we, and we celebrate it. Like, hey, we've got X releases out today and yeah, everyone gets yeah. used to like this, you know, it's highly efficient process of outgoing software. But is, is that the right thing? Just because we could doesn't mean that we should the
1: incentives are all wrong because if developers only get paid for the releases that they do or while they're on the project and that's you know you really should get a slap on the back saying well done we, we're able to make this change survive and and we're able to add a column or be able to do, you know configure the software without even asking you and you weren't even bothered you wouldn't have to get you out of bed thank you for building flexible software that we were able to control and so
2: get people to pay for that sometime yeah
3: that's, I was once on this project and uh, there was this project manager came in and they said, the test coverage isn't what it should be. And we were like, oh yeah, yeah, it's awful. So they said, well, you know, we need to add loads of tests around this area of the code base. So we need to do it very, very quickly. So this contractor put his hand up and said, well, I'll come in over the weekend and just, you know, I'll take the hit personally and write all these tests. So he went away the weekend. He was there for like hours and hours and hours, wrote all these tests. We came in on Monday and we just tweaked the abstraction and just deleted the entire lot. Mm. And that's completely pointless. So... I think there is something about incentives being slightly misaligned there and it can play against you into this model where we think we've always got to have software being pushed out the door.
0: Yeah, I've seen people write tests to link up with their Jira test coverage plugins or whatever that literally just basically return true. I mean, (laughs) they sort of look like they're doing something, but they're not really. And you just get people, especially on like big teams and enterprise projects, just however many man hours, whatever is spent on appeasing the test coverage plugins or something, it does turn into what I think is quite a big waste of time. But at the same time, I've also seen not having enough tests and then you come to do a refactor and you're like, well, I have no idea if my refactor has broken some lesser used part of the system or not. So I think you definitely, like there are places where they they make sense and there are places where they don't make sense. And I think same with types.
3: Just to wrap up, I guess, like Dan North had this wonderful Metaphor of like the driving instructor. Like when people learn to drive, it's a bit like TDD. They want to do it the strict way. Like start with a failing test, always do test everything, and, and build your way up from there. And it's a bit like when you go to a driving school, you you, you learn to turn the wheel in those funny sort of increments that no one does once yeah. they have sort of mastered and Ten and two, driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's of course like advanced driving school where you learn like handbrake turns. And that's a bit like integration tests. Like you don't need to have like <laughs> solid TDD unit tests everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, okay, that wraps up. But we're just going to finish you know, chatting about the, the the party. We did an intro video for the party, which was aimed to cover the thirteen point eight billion years of, of, of history <laughs> leading up to leading up to Juxta. and in that segment, we, we did devote a good kind of five or six seconds to Xerox Park. Palo alto research center which we we've certainly taken inspiration from and and certainly this kind of idea of getting small groups of people together you can create amazing things and there's it, it something that obviously was special about that research center that was able to produce so many things you know like the ethernet and laser printers and windowing and the mouse and so on and so forth, so forth so we we wrote a wrote a song called Park Life which we'll we'll play play now so we'll fade out with that so Thank everybody for listening. You Hi
0: everyone. bye I'll
1: get rudely awakened by that blasted line printer again. Gary's got some lasers, gonna fix it. Chuck's got an idea for a personal computer, fits on your desk, shows pictures and old sorts. Hook it up to Bob's Ethernet and start chatting to Bert about the graphicality of data flow. Next up, need a pointy device, don't I? Invent the mouse, wiggle it a bit, it's alright, it's okay. I bet on with Alan who reckons he can make a programming language based on message passing. Says it can be done in less than a page of code. Think big talk small I say. Good luck with that mate. Been messing around with text formatting on the alto. With Lampy what you see is what you get. Bravo mate. And natural language processing enables grammar checking on your documents don't they? Cookies, am going